Jonah chapter 1. Uh, for those of you who have grown up in the church, um, what we're going to do in the next four weeks uh, in some ways, hopefully, it's going to bring some new life into what may have just been like a classic old Bible tale or Bible story to you about a guy who uh, got eaten by a fish, and it remains just this sort of this mythical and marvelous tale in your minds. For some of you who didn't grow up in the church, this might be the first time that you ever hear about Jonah other than thinking, oh yeah, wasn't he the Bible guy with the fish? And so what we're hoping to do is to really dive in deep and really kind of pull out what what was intended for us to know and to learn uh, from this particular book, which goes far, far beyond just this really amazing story about what God does in the life of a rebellious guy and uses a fish in the process to uh, to bring him back uh, to to a right relationship. So that's all a part of it, but we're going to expand our view and our knowledge of this book um, as we go through it over the next four weeks. Um, so I, I don't know if you guys have ever played hide-and-go-seek uh, with, with a kid before, but uh, it's, it's a ridiculous process, okay? Um, one of the things I remember, you know, playing with my daughter, Bethy, I remember the first time we played hide-and-go-seek, you know, and I count to 100 or whatever it was, and I, and I go, and she's, she's hiding, and I walk into the living room, and she, like, has her head under the chair and her whole body, like, facing out, you know, thinking that because she's hidden her head under the chair that somehow, like, I don't see the rest of her, right? You know what's even sadder? Is when my wife joined the process and she did the same thing. It, it's ridiculous, right? I mean, what we, what we realize when we play hide-and-go-seek with kids is that kids are not the world champions of hiding, right? I mean, they, they're, they're, they're a little challenged in that area. And we laugh at this because of the absurdity, and yet in some ways we do this with God, we think that there are places in our lives that he can't see, or there are areas in our lives that he casts a blind eye to. And what this can do, and what we're going to see as we dive into Jonah, is this can cause us to do unsafe things. And so as we unpack this morning, uh, in the first week in our series, Jonah chapter 1, what we're going to see is that there's no place on earth to flee from God's presence. And yet, and this is a big and yet, okay, and yet God in his mercy is still present in the places we run to flee from him. And that's an important thing for us to remember uh, as believers who have a relationship with a God that we are constantly needing to uh, reevaluate and redefine and re-understand so that we have a picture, a clear picture of the God of the Bible and not something that we are just making up in our own heads. And what this does is when we start to understand what I just said, this clues us into something wonderful about God himself. When we begin to ponder God's omnipresence, that he is everywhere, this immeasurable magnitude, which is the title of the sermon this morning, the immeasurable magnitude of God should begin to form in our minds and lead us to an awe and a reverence and a fear of God, which, by the way, is the most helpful thing that can happen to your heart, which is to have this awe and this reverence and this fear of God. King David, uh, one, of, one of the psalmists, he spoke of this in Psalm 139. He made this comment. He said, where shall I go from your spirit? He's talking to God. He says, oh, where, shall, where shall I flee from your presence? He said, if I ascend to heaven, you're there. And then he says, if I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall 
hold me. So David was understanding something about the presence of God, the inescapable and the immeasurable magnitude of how God is everywhere with us and for us at all times. And when we let patterns of thought infiltrate our mind that lead us to believe God loses track of our whereabouts, foolish and sometimes faithfully rebellious actions are what follows. And that's what we see in Jonah as we begin here in verse 1. And our first point for the day is going to be this. God calls his people to challenging acts of obedience. This is what we see when we dive right in here to verse 1, which says this. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amite, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went on board to go with them to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. Let's just stop right there as we slowly unpack Uh, this story this morning. So who was Jonah? Well, Jonah was an Old Testament prophet of God. And how it worked back then was that God called prophets, who by the way were both men and women, to be his mouthpieces and his ambassadors. So when God calls Jonah to go to Nineveh, uh, this, this great land and country of Nineveh to speak a word of, of judgment to them, it's kind of like your boss giving you your job assignments on Monday morning, right? Now, granted, this might be a slightly more dangerous than what was getting laid out here to our boy Jonah. So Jonah gets a word from the Lord to do what? Well, to arise and go to Nineveh. And here's what's interesting is that Jonah did. He arose. He got up. He packed his bag. But instead, it says he flees to Tarshish. He flees to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. And when we see that word presence, another rendering of that word presence is face. So he flees from the face of the Lord. So he does something to the opposite of what was under his job description, what God was telling him to do that was just part of the job that prophets had to do, which was be mouthpieces and spokesmen for the Lord. Now, what we know about Tarshish, this place that Jonah was fleeing to, is that geographically, it was in the region of southeast Spain. So if you could break out a map of the ancient world, the ship that Jonah boarded in the port of Joppa would take him about as far from Nineveh as was physically possible. So, you know, Jonah took some geography classes, like he knew the boat that was going to take him in the furthest opposite direction, and he rolled with that. He, He went with it. And so immediately the question in our minds already as we just see the opening of this book is why the heck did Jonah flee? Why did he go? Well, this is an unanswered question at the beginning of the book. But we have to ask that, right? Because it's curious what happened to make Jonah so anti-Nineveh. Why did he arise and then immediately go the opposite way? What happened between Israel and Nineveh? Was there some great rivalry? Did Nineveh shut out Israel in the NBA championship four games to zero? Like, what happened? Why was there all of this angst with Jonah going the other way? Was Jonah just being lazy? I mean, I don't know. Southeast Spain might have been a real nice time of that year to go visit. I don't know. We actually, though, get our answer in the weeks to come. So we're going to hold our horses for a little delayed gratification, and we're going to find out later why Jonah 
did not, under any circumstance, want to go to Nineveh and carry out this assignment that God had given to him. And so even from the beginning here, what we see happening to Jonah here is also one of the conflicts for all of Christians, right? God calls his people to challenging acts of obedience on the front lines of life, which means we're always responding to God's call in some way because God is calling us to obedience. So every minute of every day, we are responding to God's call in some way. What Jonah reminds us of is that following God is not safe because his assignment was not safe. Following God is not safe. It's just safer than not following God is what we see. So Jonah was called by God to do the job that God was calling him to do. What do we mean when we say call? We kind of throw that word around a lot in the church. What do we mean by call? Well, we mean this. We mean obeying all that God has commanded for us to do in the Bible, which means entering uncomfortable places and engaging with uncomfortable people, right, in order to be a light and a witness to the grace and mercy of God through Jesus Christ. That's the call. So the question then becomes, even from the very beginning here, as we're in three verses here to the book of Jonah, the call for us this morning now is, well, what, what is our Nineveh? What's the Nineveh in our lives? In other words, what has God put right in front of you that you are resisting and that you are fleeing and that you are rising and walking the other way? Because what's happening here, and as we're going to see in the rest of this chapter, is that God was setting Jonah up. God's setting Jonah up. Jonah's not that clever. Jonah packing his bags, rising, paying the fare, getting on the ocean liner, going the opposite way. Like, he's not that brilliant. He's not that brilliant. God was setting Jonah up. Do you look at the events in your life like that? Do you see everything that happens in your life as divine and providential? Do you resist the hard work that God might be doing? And are you fleeing? There's different ways to flee, isn't there? Maybe for some of you, you're fleeing physically. Maybe for some, it's emotionally. Maybe for some, it's spiritually. I mean, I look back, and I think of the many open doors I blatantly have not gone through because they were not the doors I wanted opened in my life. I can... I can I can resonate with Jonah. I can resonate what's going on, which is God gave him something to do that he didn't want to do. And he said, I ain't doing it. I'm just not doing it. You resist. If you've ever been to the Pacific Ocean, what you'll notice is that the Pacific Ocean has massive waves, like big, big, big waves. It's not, it's not Lake Erie. It's not Lake Erie. Don't get me wrong, Lake Erie is... Lake Erie is nice. Lake, Lake Erie is, is clean. Lake Erie is a, it's a, I'm just literally lying to you all right now. I don't know why I keep talking. Um, but here's what's interesting. Here's, here's one of the dangers. I'm just going to shut up about Lake Erie. Get back to the Pacific Ocean. One of the things about the Pacific Ocean is it's dangerous, right? Because you have these massive waves that have these particular breaking points. Now, if you get, if you get right in the breaking point, what happens is these waves crash on you. They don't just crash on you. They flatten you. And when they hit on top of you, they plunge you all the way down. You hit the ocean floor. And the problem is if you're in 
range of the breaking point, as soon as you get up for air, there's another one coming down on you. And it is incredibly scary when that happens. And a lot of people lose their life because they get caught in those breaking points. But what you need to do initially is you need to just dive out there and you need to swim far beyond the breaking point. You need to take a risk. You need to get out far enough so that those waves won't come crashing down on you. This is what Jonah didn't do. Jonah kept himself in this particular breaking point where God was going to have to deal with him very specifically for not going where he had asked him to go. So God calls his people, and he calls his people to challenging acts of obedience. Secondly, God acts mercifully when his people respond to his call with disobedience. And this is what's strange, and this is what's mysterious, and this is what kind of cues us in about the character of God. I said cue, I meant clue. And what we do is we read on in verse 4, we see four contrasting reactions as Jonah pays the fare and hops on this carnival cruise to Tarshish. Look what it says in verse 4. It said, but the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. And there was a mighty tempest on the sea so that the ship threatened to break up. So the first thing we see is this reaction of God. So Jonah's plan to flee from the presence of the Lord, it turns out to be just this epic fail for him, right? The ship just didn't just happen to come upon some choppy waters. That's not the way we read this. It says the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. Let this strengthen your theology. Nothing happens that the Lord doesn't ordain, that the Lord doesn't plan, that the Lord doesn't purpose. If the storm was a fraction less severe, the ship would have been just fine. Just another storm to be weathered. If it had been any worse at this moment, the ship would have been decimated. But God here sends a great wind just mighty enough that it causes alarm and danger. Because look how the mariners react as we get down to verse 5. It says, And the mariners, the sailors, were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship in the sea to lighten it for them. So as God hurls this great wind, the mariners become afraid. They cry out to their gods. They hurl their cargo into the sea. Now, let's not forget, these are men of the sea, right? I mean, this is not you and me. These are sailors. These aren't dudes with life preservers and adult beverages on a boat trip to Put-in-Bay for the weekend. Like, that's not what's happening right here. These men, for these men to cry out to their gods is an indicator that preservation of life has become their most precious commodity in this moment. This is a dangerous, dangerous situation. So this is the way that God reacts to Jonah by hurling this great wind. And then we see this reaction of the mariners in great fear and scrambling to lighten the load of the ship. And then we see Jonah here at the end of verse 5, which says, but Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So some dudes can sleep through anything. That was my brother, right? And this is Jonah. He's fast asleep. But you know what's interesting is now we begin to get some insight in sort of the deeper recesses of Jonah's heart. Because not only did he board a ship going the opposite direction, but he's seemingly undisturbed by the storm, right? Right? 
Where is Jonah's apathy coming from? I mean, what's going on with this brother that can lay in the inner chamber of this ship while everything is running amok and there's all of this havoc and he's just fast asleep? There's a curious and confusing obliviousness going on here. And you know what? The captain, captain's not having it as we get into verse 6. He says this, so the captain came and said to him, what do you mean, you sleeper? I think he's being pretty nice right there. I think my language would have been a little stronger for our boy Jonah. What do you mean, you sleeper? He said, arise, call out to your God, and perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. So we see now the reaction of the captain. Everybody's having a very curious and specific reaction. Naturally, this man is shocked to see Jonah sleeping away, so he urges Jonah to get up to see the seriousness of the situation, to call out to his God, which is ironic, isn't it? Given that Jonah was trying to flee from his God. And what is he faced with? Well, he's faced with a non-believer coming in to the bottom of a ship where he's sleeping oblivious and uncaring about danger and saying, hey, if you have a God, Jonah, right now would be a real good time to start praying to him. The captain believes that this is their only hope. The captain believes that it's come to this. The captain believes we have one option, and that's to pray. That's what the captain comes to. That's his reaction. And then we get to verse 7, and it tells us how the rest of the ship responds. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So it says they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Imagine that. Then they said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country, and of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. And when the men were exceedingly afraid and said to them, what is this you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. So the mariners, they cast lots. We remember that people cast lots for Jesus' clothing. It was a way for them to determine. It was almost like a, a measuring system that they had to, to see who would get chosen for certain things and who would win certain things. So they cast lots to see who was responsible for the storm. And of course, God allows the lot to fall on Jonah. So the men question this guy. This is an unknown passenger that's been asleep in the bottom deck who now appears responsible for their fate. Jonah answers. He says, I'm a Hebrew. Oh, and by the way, I fear the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and dry land. So now you're an evangelist, Jonah. Cool, right? That's what we look, that's what we think when we see this. I mean, how hollow were Jonah's words right here? I mean, everything that's going on in his life, and the mariners come to him, and now he affirms his belief in God. And I think of the times I've had to raise my hand and go, believe it or not, I'm a Christian, even though you'd have no clue it was true right now. I think about those moments in my life, and there's too many of those moments in my life. But what Jonah and the men didn't know was that God was going to act mercifully, even though Jonah had responded to God's call with disobedience. 
And it's a strange thing because it goes against everything that we think God should react and respond with. And so Jonah gives them some counsel as we get down to verse 11. Then he said to them, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. And he said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know that it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. So the storm now is going from bad to worse. So the mariners ask Jonah, they say, dude, what do you want us to do? The lot fell on you. And back in this culture, they believed, hey, if things like this, if raging storms start to come upon us and undo us, it must mean that the gods are angry. And so because the lot fell on Jonah, they said, it's your God, he's angry, what did you do, who are you? So Jonah says, hurl me into the sea. That's Jonah's solution. Hurl me into the sea. By the way, there's a lot of hurling going on, isn't there? I don't think I've said the word this much in my entire life. Um, Jonah says, if you throw me into the sea, it will quiet the storm. Here's the solution, because this is my fault. Do you like the way Jonah just owns it? He just owns it right there in that particular moment. But you know what's interesting for us is here that we see another moment of God's sovereignty coupled with man's responsibility, right? God sovereignly sent the storm, but Jonah was responsible for God sending the storm, right? So that's getting us in some deep theological waters, no pun, no pun intended on that one. But there's those two things working together where we see our actions and we see, uh, we, we see the, the consequences of our action, but we never see God out of control at the same time working in context with the consequences of our actions. There's a bit of a mystery there for us. What's shocking is that Jonah just acknowledged that he feared God, didn't he? Yet at no moment does he cry out to God, does he? At no moment does he say, God, would you forgive me? Would you please calm the storm and I'll turn around and I'll head back to Nineveh? At no point does Jonah offer up that kind of prayer. Jonah would rather die than carry out this assignment, and that's fascinating. How many times have you or I been through a storm in our lives only to realize later after we've been delivered from it that never once did we go before the Lord and consider him and pray? The mariners are better men than Jonah. And look what they do in verse 13. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land. They heard what Jonah just said. That wasn't acceptable for them. But they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. The mariners are better than Jonah. They ignore his suggestion and row harder, but it's no good. It's not working. Sometimes we find ourselves in moments where we know what needs to be done, but we're unwilling. We're unwilling to do the thing that God is calling us to do. And yet, until a sacrifice is made, which is obedience, nothing changes for us. And then in our ignorance, we stand back and say, why isn't anything changing? 
Well, because you're not doing the thing that God has given you the mercy and grace to actually do. Nothing was changing for the sailors. The tempest was getting more tempestuous. The storm was getting stormier. And then the most amazing thing happens in verse 14. Therefore, they called out to the Lord, the sailors, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Minutes earlier, these brothers had been calling on their gods to save them, and their condition only worsened. And finally, in verse 14, they call out to the Lord, and they prayed. Listen to this. One of the most theologically rich prayers you could ever imagine for pagan sailors faced with imminent mortality. What do they pray here? Well, they pray for deliverance. They ask for forgiveness for what was about to happen to Jonah, who they considered to be an innocent man. And then they acknowledge God's sovereignty and control over all things. It's like, I hope we pray that prayer. Are these mariners better than us? So they hurled Jonah into the sea, and it says it ceased from raging. The second they let one man's sacrifice become payment for the wrath of those waves, they were saved. Interestingly, this is what happens next. It says they feared the Lord exceedingly. They offered a sacrifice and they made vows. You know what happened after that? You know what happened after the, the sea ceased raging and they finally realized that they were going to be saved? They worshiped. They had a church service. They do what we are doing right now. That's what they did. Why? Because they'd been delivered from death by the sacrifice of one man. Is it not God's will for all of us to be like these mariners? Is it not? To wake up and see the storm of sin that rages inside of our hearts and is leading us toward destruction. To finally realize that calling on the gods of our lives and rowing harder in the power of our own strength is total and utter futility. That only through the sacrifice of one man will the wrath of God be satisfied and the tempest of death that is our fate will cease from its destructive power over us. This is the good news. This is the good news. And in this we see my third point. God's greatest act of mercy in Christ is illustrated to us in the Old Testament by a rebel prophet. That's phenomenal. That's phenomenal for us. Question. Where do you find yourself this morning with God? That's a bit of a broad question, isn't it? Let's narrow it down for a minute. Where do you find yourself with God? In what ways are you like Jonah? Are you somebody who's just heading to Joppa? You know? Just got your bag packed. It's casual. You know? 
nothing too major going on in my life right now. Maybe you find yourself paying the fare to get on the boat. You know what God is asking of you. You know what God has required of you. And you're still standing on dry land. But maybe it's like you've paid the fare. Maybe for some of you, it's like, no, it's a little bit deeper. I've kind of done this with God. I've stepped onto the boat that is starting to uh, take off, leave the port, go in a direction that is probably not where I should be going. But, you know, it's a big boat and it goes really slow. Some of you guys are on the boat. Some of you guys have fallen asleep on the boat because there haven't been any storms in your life. And you're now asleep on a boat that's heading in the opposite direction of what you know is obedience and what you know that God has called you. For some of you, it's gone beyond that. For some of you, there have been storms that have awakened you in your life. You've been asleep in the lower deck, and now the weather has changed, and you've been awakened to a storm, and you're thinking, how did I get here? Forgetting that at one point you were heading to Joppa. Forgetting that at one point you paid the fare. Forgetting that at one point you stepped onto the boat going in the opposite direction. Forgetting that at one point you were so cozy in that ocean liner that you fell asleep. But you've been awakened to a storm. And for some of you, it's gone so badly that you feel like your life is like you've been thrown overboard. And even the ocean liner even the place that you were, that you didn't think was that far from the obedience that you should rightfully be pursuing in God through Christ, even that's not a comfort. So you've been thrown overboard. And for some of you, oh my goodness, it's so far beyond that, man. It's like you're in the belly of the fish. You've ended up exactly where Jonah has ended up. Look what it says in 17, and that's where we're going to end for today. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Are you resisting God right now? Are you trying to flee from his presence? And will you follow the example of the mariners? Will you acknowledge your fear? Will you stop crying out to all of the other gods in your life that have failed to answer you in your distress? Will you ask the question, who and what might those gods be? Because they're no less significant and powerless than the gods that the mariners were crying out to and got no answer from. It's no different. And if you think that they were just a more superstitious society, bring it a little closer to home. And look at the things that you cry out to, that you cave into, that you plead to, that you reach out for, that you grab hold of, that you pull close to, to save you from what you know is the truth and the obedience that God has called you to. This is what the immeasurable magnitude of God's presence means, okay? It means not only can we not screw up God's plans, 
but He even uses our acts of disobedience and our bad decisions as part of His plan to now show His presence to us. That's what we see. That's what we see when we look at God and the way He reacts to people that have tried to flee from His face and gone the other way. Now, does that mean we should just sin so that grace and mercy may abound because it doesn't matter? Well, the Apostle Paul says, by no means. The Apostle Paul in Romans 6 says, we know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. We would no longer be enslaved to the desires that cause us to pack our bags and go to Joppa and pay the fare and get on the boat and go to sleep on the boat and eventually get overthrown from the boat and land in the belly of the whale. Sorry, fish. I had too many veggie tails for me this week. And then Paul finishes by saying, for one who has died has been set free from sin. Jonah was set free from sin because he was God's chosen prophet. But sometimes we get stuck because we're still sinners. But in that, what we see is that God's mercy is always bigger than our sin. God's people can run from God, but God doesn't run from his people. His presence far outreaches our pushback against him. And this is why Jonah chapter 1 should be encouraging to us because God wasn't punishing Jonah. God was calling Jonah back. That's what God was doing to Jonah. Jonah was playing into God's hands. But you know what? If you don't like that phrase, this is what we know about God's hands. God's hands are hands of mercy and hands of deliverance in hands that eventually in Christ would be pierced for the sins of the world on the cross. We think we can remove ourselves from God's presence and our disobedience when in reality it's the way God intervenes with new mercies every morning and grace upon grace. This tells us something about God. There was no reason for God to treat Jonah like this. There was no reason for it. Jonah deserved to be punished. There was no reason for God to treat the mariners like that. There's no reason for God to treat you like this. Unless, unless God in the immeasurable magnitude of his loving and merciful presence decided to save you in the storm of your sin through the sacrifice of one man, Jesus Christ. There's no place on earth to flee from God's presence, and yet God, in His mercy, is still present in the places you run to flee from God. So what we know is that this is not a story about a prophet. It's not a story about a stormy sea. It's not a story about some fearful sailors. These are simply the catalysts to get us to Christ who, by the way, is also named Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. Because he is the magnitude of God's immeasurable presence for all who stop resisting him and instead seek his face. That's the bright hope and future that Jonah chapter 1 provides for us this morning. Amen?
Let's pray. God, we thank you for your mercy and your presence in our lives. And even though we are disobedient people, you call us back and you send storms of mercy and grace into our lives to wake us up. You throw us overboard and out of our comfort to wake us up. You put us in the belly of the whale to wake us up. And it's an act of mercy because it's better to be called back to you than to walk through the world fleeing from your presence. Lord, we thank you that in this we see so much goodness in the face of your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you that we see such an inescapable connection with the cross. Thank you that all scripture reminds us and it all leads to that moment when we find deliverance through Jesus. Lord, I pray for those who have not found that deliverance or who are stuck on a boat in their life going the wrong way. I pray, Lord, that you'd call them back. I pray that they would know that they can be called back, that they have not stepped too far, they have not traveled too many miles, because with you there is forgiveness and mercy. And for this we thank you and pray all things in Christ's name. Amen.